This program is sponsored by Wicked, Chronic, and Natick, Massachusetts. Located on 185 Worcester Street, right on Route 9, they can be reached at 508-545-8105 or at wickedchronicvendorcommerce.com. Wicked Chronic is a boutique-style retail shop that focuses on selling counterculture products such as Wiccan cannabis cultures coming together in a unique setting. You need something for that special spell? Go on down to Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts and speak to Beverly. Tell them Dr. Chris sent you. Check them out today. TV podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the canceled television shows in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. And tonight we are continuing our coverage of Adam's Family with the end of season one and the beginning of season two. And the first episode up is The Winning of Morticia. But before we get to that, let's go to our focus area. Today's focus topic is on Dear Dead Days, a family album. Published in 1959 by J.P. Putnam and Sons. Now, this is Charles Adams' sixth uh, book, but it's not actually an anthology of cartoons like all the rest. Today, I'm going to talk exclusively about this book instead of going into more of Charles Adams' life. That's because this book is just so odd. All of his previous books were just cartoons, and this is not is, quote, the private world of the creator of the Adams Family, unquote. And it's a catalog of old advertisements, photographs, and other relics of the bazaar, including a photo of a three-legged man and a newspaper clipping of Topps the Elephant being electrocuted by Thomas Edison with 6,000 volts for killing three people in 1903. Some of the entries are Victorian architecture-related, but it's really a collection of things that the Adams family would have enjoyed, um, not many actual cartoons. Uh, the entire book was very shocking for 1959. I had to buy this one, even though it's far from an actual cartoon book. If you like stuff macabre, you'll definitely find this one interesting. This one was also reprinted in 1966 in paperback. It was not a successful book. I think many people were just upset that it wasn't, as the cover states, a family album. I'm not sure if that's an intentional deception, but the cover has the entire Adams family sitting on a snowy day in a gazebo looking at x-rays. Some of the weirder things in this book also includes a picture of six corpses posed as if they are the ones doing an autopsy on a living person on the table. There's a bevy of medical oddities, train and car wrecks, a woodcut drawing of a homemade guillotine for someone's suicide, a list of mortality causes from 1802 in which consumption, fever, measles, and cholera were the top causes of death. There's a photo of a shrunken body. It's a weird book. It's a seriously weird book. Between advertisements for embalming fluid, pictures of conjoined siblings, and images of, and drawings of torture devices, there really isn't any substance to the book. There's no 
starting point to it is just a book of things that inspire him. Considering he always had this interest, it just expanded after the death of his best friend Sam Cobain and after the terrible marriage. Only a true fan of the freakish and deadly will appreciate this book. In fact, he only got $1,500 in advance and $5,000 in royalties from all editions combined, although he refused to consider it a failure. The New Yorker never even advertised for it, thought it was too off-brand. After everything, uh, he said, quote, I think probably it was maybe a little ahead of its time, unquote. I guess even in today's market, this would be a little more than a coffee table book for a Halloween party. Mildly entertaining at best, somewhat nauseating at worst. You were warned. That's it for today. Do you have the plop synopsis for The Winning of Morticia? The Winning of Morticia Adams originally aired May 21st, 1965. A magazine article by eminent psychologist Dr. Francois Chalon has Uncle Fester believing that the happiness of Morticia and Gomez's marriage masks seething emotions buried deep. So Fester makes it his duty for family peace and harmony to get them fighting so they can let off emotional steam and become a truly happy couple. He recruits others in the family to do this end, but winds up with little to show for it. Finally, Fester calls in Dr. Shalone himself, but the eminent doctor proves to be a modern-day Casanova, bringing different problems into the Adams home by wooing Morticia and preparing to kill Gomez in a duel for her hand. Now, two things from this episode remind me of the Adams Family movie. One, the uh, the fencing. Of course, we don't get really we don't get a big fencing fight like I was hoping for, and um, the twins that Gomez and Fester would date. When Morticia meets them at the Halloween, uh, well, that's not a Halloween party. It's a Fester's going away party. Um, she compliments them on being twice the woman that she is because they're Siamese twins. Yes, yes. <laughs> Have you ever met Siamese twins? Um, met? I don't believe so, actually. Uh, someone... yeah, that that is does definitely some people that I would love to meet, but I don't actually believe I've I've met. Uh, Conjoined twins. There was a Siamese twin uh, adult film. I know that was very famous. Adult film. Yes, it's overseas. Oh well. Uh, I did not <laughs> want to watch it, but uh, apparently they're like they're joined at like the the the, the shoulder and the arm, so they have like two separate bodies. So yeah. That sounds like it's easy to separate them, if that's the case. Apparently they didn't want to be. I don't know. I don't know the schematics behind yeah. it. Apparently. Yeah, I, I don't know either. Yeah, I just don't. I just, um, I think it would get into porn. I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. I mean, anyway. <laughs> you know, if you've got it flaunted, I guess. <laughs> I mean... Whatever. I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I can't answer that one for you, Doctor Chris. <laughs> All right. So, um, Fester really pushes onto Gomez and Morticia that their marriage is falling apart when it really isn't, and he seems to be on a vendetta to break them up. Yeah, yeah. He gets it in his head that uh, they need to fight in order to, you know, be a happy couple because this article says that. Married couples that fight like cats and dogs are actually the happiest, and I completely disagree with that. People that fight like cats and dogs may be able to connect on that level, but they're not connecting anywhere else. 
uh, and Gomez and Morticia, they love each other. They, you know, in this episode, like, Gomez gives in to the suggestion that uh, the Zen Yogi Society is a fraud. And that's a total misunderstanding and totally what Fester is, you know, setting up. He's the cons- conspirator of this entire thing. But when Gomez loves the Zen Yogi Society, but when he finds out that Morticia believes it's a fraud, he just, he doesn't confront her about it. He just says, oh, you know, we'll spend more time together. And she says, yes, and, you know, all your hats don't fit your head anymore. <laughs> is Zen Yogi a real thing? Actually, it is. Uh, it, it's not Zen Yogi, like the Zen Yogi Society was a name created for the show, but Zen Yoga uh, is actually a thing. And um, to give you, I'm not going to go into history here because there's, oh, I, I, just, I did the focus area already, but uh, to touch on that, in 1924, U.S. immigration banned uh, Indian immigrants, and uh, yoga was actually making a, a big popularity at the time, although because of this immigration um, halt, this ban, if you wanted to study yoga, you actually had to go east. And then in 1960, what was it, uh, 1960, uh, well, I can't find it here. Um, I, I'll find it in a second. But um, so yoga became really popular, and around the time of the show, the, the early 60s, yoga was severely popular, and uh, that is because the immigration laws changed, and uh, Easterners could actually come to America in order to um, teach yoga. So it was a huge surge in America. So Gomez being into this at the depth that he is was pretty much in line with the popularity in the pop culture at the time. So that it was it was big, huge, and them portraying the um, the uh, grand guru with the Indian turban and whatnot that is that is accurate. That is it is an Indian, you know, it was brought over from India in the 1800s. So that is completely legit. And Lurch went to take his hat and then realized it was a turban and backed away slowly. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> I wasn't sure where they were going with that, the whole turban thing and the, uh, the uh, you know, the Indian. Yeah, they spent a lot of time talking about Zen Yogi in this episode, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the fencing was also the second most popular topic in this whole episode, you know. Gomez nearly gets into a duel with this Dr. Francois Chalon. They call the doctor to the um, – again, you have to go by your notes because I don't have mine. Yes. <laughs> so who calls the doctor lead the conversation? Well, Fester calls the doctor and then says that he wants the doctor to come over to the house pretending that he's an old school chum of Fester's, you know, so that – the doctor can clearly observe them with in in their natural habitat without um, you know any sort of uh, repercussions there. And as soon as the doctor sees Morticia, he has, you know he's French, she speaks French, and there's this awkward moment. I actually grabbed a screen cap of it. You know, we'll probably post it on our Facebook page of the moment where the doctor is kissing Morticia's hand, and you know he starts saying French to her. 
Gomez gets turned on, grabs her hand. So both of them are kissing her hand, and then they kind of look at each other and it's like, awkward. <laughs> oh, yes. Overall, I think this is a very campy and hilarious episode, but the, the jealousy trope um, just doesn't pan out for the Adams family. They just don't do that. The um, the actor who plays the psychologist is Lee Bergery, and uh, for a minute there, I, before I scrolled down his IMDb, I thought it was going to tell me that he played Abraham Lincoln. And I thought he played Abraham Lincoln in Bill and Ted because his IMDb photo is a picture of him as Abraham Lincoln, um, and it looks like the Bill and Ted Abraham Lincoln. But uh, I don't know when he played Abe Lincoln, but uh, long-time television actor who had been on, like, Soap and uh, The Six Million Dollar Man and Wonder Woman. Well, there was a television show called Lincoln that he was on, so maybe that's the picture from that. Well, he made his debut alongside uh, James Dean, too, in a uh, World War II uh, production. Oh, nice. He was also in Star Trek as Lincoln, so that might be that scene either. Oh, One of okay. Those two. Actually, One yeah, of those actually, two. yeah. That's the transporter behind him. I didn't even realize that. So in the photo, it's the transporter on the Starship Enterprise that is behind ah. him. Huh, got it. Okay, right. that's why. All right, yeah, I do remember that episode of Star Trek now, where there, Abraham Lincoln comes aboard the Enterprise. Yeah, he was also on the Munsters uh, in the episode Herman's Rival. So same type of plot line. And if you take a look at both episodes. Side by side, you know, you can see how the families have way different reactions to things. The um, also a uh, small, uh, not a big role in this episode, but a small part for a cousin. It. Yeah, he's just an advisor in this episode. Uh, my favorite character, just because he's so weird. Um, <laughs> the uh, the new cousin it toy coming out for the new animated Adams Family movie looks kind of cool. It's really small. Um, you know, and uh, he's got his bowler hat on and his sunglasses. Are those the pop fi- figures? No, these are something. These are like regular, the regular toys. Oh, regular toys. All right. Yeah, regular toys. And then uh, those, I'm sure there'll be some. Pop, uh, those pop figures are really cute. Yeah, I posted about the uh, Morticia Adams pop figure, which I, I swear if you swap out the head, you'd probably just have Elvira. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They give her the same kind of bust line. <laughs> Yeah, you totally. <laughs> whereas, in, like, Lyra in, in, has a little dagger around her waist. Whereas, anytime Morticia is animated, she's animated incredibly anorexically thin and yeah. tall. A yeah, little yeah. ridiculous. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a little too much for me on that part. Yeah, it's still really off-putting watching that trailer. I've seen it now like a dozen times because how many times I go to the movie theater. In the beginning of this episode, when the entire plot of this is being set up. Fester has this conversation with Grandmama, and Grandmama, he offers this idea of calling the Zen Yogi Society and canceling Gomez's membership. And Grandmama says, Gomez will have a fit. He loves Zen Yogi. And Fester says, exactly. And if he doesn't... uh, And if he doesn't give Morticia a whack or two, how else is he going to prove his undying love? And the Grandmama says, and if she cares for him... She'll conk him one for or once or twice. What lovely fireworks! So they're just trying to to drum up some drama. Right. Yeah, and with uh, domestic abuse too. Yeah, I know. Weird. Um, um, unlike in like the movie, they uh, you know they they um, 
they sound like they're in ecstasy over the thought of a, you know leather straps and hot pokers. Well, there's a difference between consensual and non-consensual, and if she's conking him over the head and, and he's giving her a whack, that's probably going to be non-consensual because that's done in anger uh, versus consensually, which is done methodically and with care and sensuality. So I am pretty yeah. sure that Gomez and uh, gives Morticia a good uh, spanking whenever they have their you know, off-camera lovemaking. No, duh. There's the playroom. That's <laughs> that's entirely what that place. Oh is. yeah, the rack and everything. Yeah, I'm I'm quite yeah. sure that it's. Uh, I'm sure there is enough Adams Family fan fiction, uh, erotic erotic fan fiction on the internet to read. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure. And 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 probably including characters I don't want to be included. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So this guy wants to fight Gomez to the death or whatever was a fencing, and the, again the disappointment is we never actually get a fencing fight. We get a lot of we get a lot of like build up and practice, but and like the threat of killing Gomez to win Morticia's hand, and Morticia seems to like be going along with it because she likes having two men fight over her. She's not. I mean, there's a line there that she's kind of balancing on the razor's edge between this because. She doesn't want Gomez to participate in the duel. They've tried everything to get him to not participate in the duel, like breaking his rapier and injuring his wrist. And so she's kind of giving Dr. Francois Chalon some ideas that she likes him so that, you know, he will go away. You know, it's, I would not like to see you hurt. Yeah, and he... I don't know what the reason is why he finally says that he's going to leave. You know, he claims that he's coward, but he's also killed three men for women in duels before. So he's not afraid to kill, and he's not afraid to be killed in a duel. And he's a championship offenser. So why does he actually leave? He he gets this, this moment of, ah, oh, I understand. But me as the audience member, I, this is one point of this episode I never understood. It was never clearly defined, and, and me being an adult and seeing it now, I still don't understand why he turned tail and fled. It, because it the not... script dictated it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. they ran out of time with the episode. It just feels like they built up this fencing match, which they've had, you know, Gomez fence, well, Morticia, but it, they, I don't understand why they didn't go forward with like the fencing match, and just call it a draw, and then him succeed, and then him leave. I would have liked to have had the match, and it's just, it's just, I it don't like sucked. this episode because of the buildup and absolutely nothing that happens. It's kind of a dumb episode. Like the 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 character they introduce him is really fun, but they the buildup doesn't go anywhere, and it's just a big letdown. I can see your point on that. You know, if if the excitement of combat is what you're really looking forward to, you will not find it in this episode. They build it up and they don't do anything. It's kind of a dumb, you know, it's, it's just a badly written, like, all this practice. I would have liked two minutes of a fight scene between the two of them. And then he succeeds and run away, you know, and he has a change of heart or whatever. You know what I mean? We don't need to have a winner or a loser, you know, yeah. or it'd been, it, it, Gomez probably would have come out on top and just let him live because he's, you know, he's not a fictitious, yeah. yeah, fictitious guy. So th this episode was just dumb. I was excited until that happened. And then watching it, I just lost complete interest after the end. 
Yeah, Gomez states, uh, for Morticia, my querida, I would fight the greatest swordsman in all the world. And, you know, this guy is the greatest swordsman in France. So um, he, I don't think Gomez really had a chance because all of his practice, Gomez is a very chaotic fencer. Like he jumps around a lot and he's not paced with his with his thrusts. And he that would be the only thing that would tip him over the edge into being a winning position simply because the other fencer would be expecting a parry or a thrust where it was logically made sense, and Gomez doesn't fence that way. He's just kind of whipping his rapier around and jumping. <laughs> it's entertaining to watch, but actually to have those two dramatically different styles fight one another, I'm not sure would actually be visually appealing. Right, definitely. Um, well, that's all the notes I have for this episode um, that I was disappointed in. <laughs> yeah, and Gomez gets back into the Zen Yogi Society from uh, hanging on to the chandelier with his feet. Um, that impressed the Grand Guru. Yes, and uh, this is the end of season one of the Adams Family. Officially the end of season one. This is episode, what, 34? 34. 34. So the next episode, when we come back from a quick break, will be episode one of season two of The Addams Family, here on the Dead TV Podcast. Attention. Attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST. Hosted by MASH fan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes episode by episode greatest television series of all time, MASH. Find MASHCast on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Chuck Hilarity! Chuck Hilarity! Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure. Got to give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? (laughs) Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. (laughs) Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about Cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. (laughs) Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. And we're back with Season 2, Episode 1 of The Addams Family. My Fair Cousin It, originally aired on September 17th, 1965. To cap off Wednesday's upcoming birthday, Gomez, Tennessee Adams, has written a play, Claude and Mabel, which comes out quite exactly like Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. To make sure his play is a big success, Gomez hires acclaimed Broadway director Eric Von Bissell to direct it. Von Bissell's career has been on the skids as of late, so Gomez's money is quite appealing, even though the rest of the project isn't. 
Still, Von Bissell's pride and artistic reputation are threatened when he learns that Cousinish, with his gibber talk, will play the lead. Gomez, uh, Morticia takes it aside to work on lowering and slowing his voice for the average ear, but when she succeeds, she finds its personality has changed along with his voice. Now he's a theatrical snob of the worst sort. Too good for the lead in Wednesday's birthday party play. This actor was apparently very old at the time that he was on The Addams Family because he was 82 years old when he died in 1967. Yes, uh... He he was actually a Marx Brother favorite, uh, and this is one of his last roles, and that's uh, Sig Rumand. But he started his career in the silent film era, and um, uh, was born in 1884. If you believe that, of course, you know, looking thinking about that now, thinking, oh my God, someone born in 1884. A lot of us today alive were born in the 1980s, so we're we're going to have that conversation. You know, people are going to have that conversation about us one day or. You know, if we if anyone ever has a conversation about us being, oh, this person was born in 1980, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was born in 1978, so sometimes I feel just talking to people that were born in 2000 and they can vote. <laughs> oh, yeah, people, I forgot, yeah, there are people who were born in the year 2000. Yeah, you know, back when Y2K was a thing. and 9-11 was right adults. around the corner, yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, that that's the director, and then uh, accompanying the director is uh, the actor Jimmy Cross, um, who's I guess he's the talent agent. I think so. Yeah. Okay, so he's in a fame. He's on a McHale's Navy, which was a famous uh, comedy Navy show. But he was also in a famous Mystery Science Theater 2000 favorite movie called The Amazing Colossal Man, as well as being on Perry Mason, and he was in two other episodes of The Adams Family, playing different characters. Interesting. Yeah. Also, a uh, original reality TV show called How to Marry a Millionaire. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's a sitcom apparently back in the fifties, but it just reminds me of How to Marry a Millionaire from like a Fox crappy reality show. You know, uh, there was a How to Marry a Millionaire uh, book out a uh, long time ago. It's, I mentioned it in in one of my focus areas, but uh, yeah, I, I think that all throughout. Modern culture, I guess, uh, if the idea of a millionaire was there, then there's someone trying to marry that person. Right. And um, the millionaire is norm like most of the time, not to be sex, makes us sound sexist, but most of the time the millionaire was usually a man, and it was like a black widow woman who was trying to get the money. That's typically the trope. Yeah, that's not just typically the trope. It's just a lot of times because of, you know how you know the way society has been, or whatever. The men have the money, and the women, you know, want it unless they're the widow, and then they get a lot of, you know, um, they become like a sugar mama, and uh, men want to marry them for their money. But uh, a lot of times in fiction, you're right. The trope is that the man is the rich, um, rich man, and like somebody is trying to weasel the way, like in the Adams Family values. Yes, that's a big Debbie. Debbie, that is the plot line of the Adams Family values. Recently at a convention, a couple did a cosplay of Debbie and Uncle Fester with hair in his, like, white suit. Oh, wow. Yeah, it looked really <laughs> good, too. Um, I think Fester looks absolutely terrifying, like he's something out of a, you know, like one of the background characters of Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the pale white skin, the sunken eyes, and then the toupee on with the 
the the great coat or the the no neck suit. Yeah, it's yeah, it it looks ridiculous just overall. And I also think that's the first time ever, other than like the women that woo Fester in this series, that we ever see Fester like engage in like sexual activity. Maybe. Yeah. I haven't seen all of the cartoon series. I so don't. There might okay. Have been something the cartoons in there. never. The cartoons were made for children. They never depict sex. I mean, they 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 had Gomez and Morticia kiss each other a lot, but they would never depict sex. We're, we're talking about Hanna Barbera cartoons, not no, The Simpsons. Uh, well. There's other cartoon series. There's the Adams Family series from the 90s. Again, Hanna-Barbera for children. What they steal a lot from is My Fair Lady, which is about a um, like a bet between two rich guys who try to turn like a peasant girl into a into a, like a uh, a distinguished fancy lady. lady, fancy lady, right? Because she's like a poor, she's a pauper, really. With a Cockney accent. Right, and they want to get rid of her accent in order to portray an upper class maiden. Right, and one of the most famous uh, uh, the the story has been repeated like a thousand times, but yeah. the most famous is probably starring Audrey Hepburn. Yes, the movie She's All That is also My Fair Lady. Yeah, they've called it different names over the years, but it's the same plot. Yeah, someone said that uh, Pretty Woman was My Fair Lady, and I was like, no, that's Cinderella. That's, that's, not, that's not that's not Richard uh Richard Gere having a bet with another rich guy saying they can turn a prostitute into a lady. No. There is no other person involved in that. It's just literally those are the two main characters. But mm-hmm. uh she's all that, which starred Rachel Lee Cook and uh Freddie Prince Jr. and uh Yeah, that was specifically a Was bet. that guy from Fast and Furious who was in that? Paul Walker? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the late the late Paul Walker um was the other guy who makes the bet with uh with um Freddie Prince Jr. that they can turn the girl who wears her glasses and ties her hair back as an artist into a pretty girl because she takes her glasses off and puts her hair oh. down. Oh my god. Oh I know. She's hot all of a sudden. Oh. <sighs> I wear glasses and I put my hair up all the time and you don't get that type of reaction. Although I have gotten the whole Superman uh, reaction before when I put my glasses on or I take them off. You know, some people don't recognize me. But <laughs> it was also, of course, uh, funnily recreated in uh, Not Another Teen Movie. Yes. Which the <laughs> actress in that Brent. the actress in that currently plays uh, Alex on uh, on uh, Supergirl. But uh, that also starred uh, Chris Evans, Captain America. That but that I thought is the that just ridiculous. She, not another teen movie. So, uh, but uh, the, but uh, there's also a zombie version. You ever see My Fair Zombie? No. Yeah, they take a zombie and they try to turn her into a lady, and all she can say is brains, brains. <laughs> so it's like cousin It with his. And then he's got the really distinguished voice. Now, who does the voice of cousin It in this? Because it's definitely not the actor who plays him. That is a hundred percent fact. Because that actor has a very squeaky voice. Uh, yeah, no, I don't know who actually does the voice there. Yeah, and they don't list it either. The the cast no. list is done. Um, it's definitely not Felix Sela because I've heard him in interviews and he has like the voice of a child because of his small stature, his lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's oh wait, okay, I do have it. It's, it's Anthony Magro. That's basically the same person that Tony Magro. That's the same person that does cousin his voice when it's sped up in gibberish. He was the um. Uh, audio producer? 
Oh, okay. Um, and he's been the sound department. He's a sound department guy who was in Smokey and the Bandit, Fast Times at Richmond High, and uh, over 50 episodes of Murder, She Wrote, which is still the longest-running television show starring a female ever, if you can believe that. <laughs> murder, She Wrote was a good show. It was a good show, but it's still shocking to, to ever hear that a Murder, She Wrote, a, a TV series starring a 50-year-old actress, is the longest-running television show. Not a 20-something hottie blonde, bimbo, busty, you know, really sexified character, but an elderly lady or middle-aged lady who eventually becomes an elderly lady, you know, because the show ran into uh, Angela Lansbury's 60s. How many seasons was, like, The Golden Girls on the air? Not as long as Murder, She Wrote. Murder, She Wrote ran from 1984 to 1991. Wow. Yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. That's, That's how long he was on the sound department for. I'm sorry. Murder, She Wrote lasted... Uh, 264 episodes from 1984 to 1996. Wow. A total of 12 seasons. The Golden Girls did not last 12 seasons. Yeah. Wow. And Angela That's Lansbury like... starred in every single episode. 264 episodes, yeah. So, yeah, 1996 is when it went, went off the air, and then there was like a couple of uh, made-for-TV movies after that, and then it, they were finally done. Well, uh, Tony Magro actually did win an Emmy Award for sound effects for the TV film The Executioner's Song and a second nomination for the TV version of A Streetcar Named Desire, starring Anne Margaret. Oh. The only way I know Anne Margaret is from uh, Grumpy Old Men. Oh, yeah. So that she her. was the woman that came between Walter Matthau and uh, John Lemon. Yeah, the very then, uh, sexy one. And then, yeah, and then she marries John Lemon, and then Walter Matthau marries. Um, uh, Sophia Culp, uh, no, uh, very famous Spanish elderly actress. Anyway, we were so off topic. Of the yeah, so Cousin It has this new voice by this, uh, sound department guy, uh, mm-hmm. the murder she wrote, and, uh, he, he has got quite the voice on him. It's, it's pretty funny. It reminds me of, uh, um, Frank Welker. Frank Welker has a very distinguished, like, deep voice, and is best known as the voice of Megatron on Transformers. Yeah, the... The vocal exercises that Morticia guides Cousin It, you know, first it's like, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. And then that changes to, the witch's ditch is mainly full of pitch. And then, the bats in hats stay mainly on the flats. I kind of like those last two. Uh, But in order to get the sound of his voice, uh, Morticia suggests that Cousin It puts marbles in his mouth. Gomez has a bag of marbles ready that he'd apparently won from Pugsley. Who was only mentioned in this episode. Only mentioned, yes. And um, so Cousin It puts the marbles in his mouth, chews them up, says how delicious they are, and Gomez kind of panics. So like, I want this He's in kind of this little mini panic because he's losing his marbles. And I thought that was such a good pun that's totally a Marx brother thing. More uh Fester right uh, wants its part in the play and he tries to uh bludgeon it and put him out of commission so he can be in the play and then Lurch finds out that he's the next understudy so that he tries to put both Fester and it out of commission. I'd put my bets on on uh Lurch being able to get away with that considering how strong he is. Oh, oh yeah, you know, he it basically tied up Fester's hands and threw him in the sarcophagus without Fester really knowing what happened. So he did it fast, he did it uh, efficiently, and without 
Fester knowing that this huge lunking guy is really putting him in the sarcophagus. So the, the whole understudy thing, Gomez and Morticia put a kibosh on that, says Cousin It is going to be the lead, and that's final. And then Cousin It starts to get hoity-toity about it with his new voice and starts getting this attitude. He starts wearing a beret like an artist and, and then starts acting like kind of a dick. There's uh, an episode of The Simpsons um, that uh, Barney, the, there's a uh, uh, Homer and, the, and a bunch of guys have like a barbershop quartet, and it follows kind of like a Beatles plot line. They get so high, then they get so low, and Barney starts dating this like Japanese artist, and he starts wearing a beret, being like a complete asshole. <laughs> yeah, I don't know when the beret was kind of associated with those traits, but it's a very common trope. In this episode, we see... A little of a little bit that Gomez does because cousin it hoists himself inside the chimney. Chimney is one of his nice hiding places. But when Gomez looks up the chimney and this pile of soot comes down on his face. Now this is a bit that's repeated uh, throughout the show uh, several times actually. But in one of the scenes, I'm not sure if it was this episode. I, I think it was in the episode later on in season two. Gomez looks up, and John Aston was supposed to look up into the chimney, and then the soot was supposed to come down. But because of the timing of the soot uh, dropping at the wrong moment, it caked over John Aston's eyes, and he actually had to go to the hospital for that. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so I don't think it was this episode, but... It's an episode where he was just doused with the soot, and this is something that they continue to do, um, but they just, you know, are very careful on the timing of when that soot comes down on his head from then on. Yikes. Yeah. So what was it made of? Oh, it was just soot. Oh, it was real? Yes. Oh. That's... But, it got, but it got into his eyes. Yeah. That's... The hospital. Uh, Gomez pays the director and his agent... $60,000. Yeah, wow. Now, in today's money, that is $486,000. And the entire episode, this director is complaining about getting this gig. And, uh, you know, he's not going to direct this hairball. And for a half a million dollars, what would you do, Dr. Chris? Would you direct a, a, a bunch of people that are, in his mind, obviously crazy? Would you direct them and just produce this little play for a little girl for a half a million dollars? Yes. Yes, that's like a no-brainer. But at the end of the episode, the director and the agent flee the scene, leaving a huge trail of money behind them. Yeah, that's crazy why they left the money. I don't want. I I would have just ran with the money if I was going to do that. It's yeah, not like exactly. Gomez. Gomez just gives money away to people anyway, regardless of what they do for him or not. So it, it's not like they would have been offended. True, true. Uh, the the director and uh, the the agent, they're always ha the agent's always having to remind the director just how much money this is project is worth. Just. You know, $60,000, remember, $60,000, and then it changes the director's mind every time. Quite a fight to get this director. And then when Gomez calls a producer, a Broadway producer, to take on Cousinet, uh, because Cousinet's new personality says that he needs to be on Broadway, 
the producer actually wants him to be uh, the hairy beast from the Mars canals in his new movie in Hollywood. Mm. And that is the thing that throws Kuznick into a tizzy, and he starts to go back to his old voice because it's sped up, and he's just so pissed off. You know when you get in that mode where you're just so angry, you just start talking nonsense and just keeps coming out and out? It put Kuznick into that part, into that space, and he was able to get his natural voice back. Uh, in this episode... Also, Kuznick gets... Gomez gets also very physical with Cousinant in ways that I haven't seen anyone really kind of interact with him in, in like, a physical way. And and I, by that, I mean, like, touching him, picking him up, carrying him around and stuff like that. So Felix is a very short guy, too. I mean, this actor is, what, three feet tall or something? Um, I have his measurements, but, uh, yeah, three foot something. Yeah, he is an incredibly sh- – he is, he is a very small dwarf. Bigger than Mini-Me, the actor played Mini-Me, but definitely smaller than, let's say, uh, Peter Dinklage. Yes. And uh, so go, so uh, John picks him up with, like, very little ease. His arms don't come out either. So, like, we haven't seen his arms since, like, the beginning of the show when he first premiered. So it's just been his feet. Uh, we do see his hands. They're always covered in gloves. Right, which is probably uh, better. <laughs> so Felixia is three feet eleven inches. Okay, yeah, very short, very very short. Yeah, even by inches lifts him up like nothing though. Even by dwarf standards, that's incredibly short features. I and mean, again, it, it's probably shorter than uh, Warwick Davis, who's the other probably most famous dwarf next to Peter Dinklage. In this in this episode, even though the plot line is more my fair lady. By the way, is that the correct term to say? Is it dwarf? If if that person has dwarfism, then yes. Okay, I just wasn't sure, because you never know. And we don't need the emails. They're like, hey, I'm offended. Yeah, there, there's different representations. So I say little most... people. I say small person. I say dwarfism. I've heard dwarfism still used in 2018 to describe Peter Dinklage. I mean, so. Well, there's there's a, the dwarfism, and then there's a different... There's different names for exactly the representation of how the height and uh, characteristics come out. So people with the long torsos, short arms and legs, or completely proportional, the entire body. If you have dwarfism, then I guess it would be okay to call them a dwarf. But if they do not have dwarfism, then that would be inappropriate. I am not on trial for killing the king. I am on trial for being a dwarf. (laughs) Uh, now, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. Gomez hands a pair of scissors to Morticia. Right. I love that scene. I love that. <laughs> saying maybe these will help you get through to him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she contemplates it for a second. You know, she's talking there with Cousin Ed, and she contemplates, like, just using the scissors on him. And I always wondered whether that was she was going to use the scissors as a threat that she was going to cut off all of his precious hair, or if it was more practical, like cut the hair off so you can actually see him and talk to him. Uh, and Fester says, um, he reminds me of the Beatles, all four of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the long hair comments. Yeah. Right, yes, because the Beatles were very popular. The Beatles were still popular by 1967, I believe, right? Yes. And... Yes. Uh, Bubala is used in um, – so Bubala is what 
Morticia calls Gomez, but Bubula also means coitus? Uh, it's Yiddish. Yeah, but what does it mean? Does it mean to fuck? Does no. it mean intercourse? It does not. Okay, because... It's a term of endearment. Okay. Like darling. But she says, uh, Bubula later, darling. Like, we That's... will do that later. Because yeah, he starts yeah. getting into his, like, oh, that word. <laughs> Kisses her arm. And then she's like, that will Bubula later. Like, we'll we'll totally, you know... Yeah, it... She's just she's talking about it as if it's a verb, but it's not a verb. It's okay. just like, darling, later. Okay, gotcha. But she says darling as well, so. Yeah. Uh, but I just thought that was funny. I was like, okay, so bubula means intercourse? No, no. Okay. Well, that's all the notes I have. That's all the notes I have for this episode of The Adams Family. Uh, well, there's one other one, because this episode is really about uh, Cousin It being more... Uh, <laughs> egotistical in his change and if you were to take a look at the DVDs that are out there are select episodes with a commentary featuring Cousin It and Thing. I don't watch any of that because it's just gibberish. I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> it is gibberish but I've watched them all. Oh, God. It doesn't ha- add any useful information but it is in every instance Cousin It being completely egotistical and saying that this is the best scene. Oh, I had to carry him throughout the scene. You know this, and then thing moving his hand like like yada yada yada, and and mocking him every single time. So it kind of goes along with this episode. That attitude for cousin it was is pretty much in all of these little additional scenes that they have. And you know who the first person is that we see in the Adams Family movie? Well, okay, I'm sorry. After the credits, I mean, we see uh, okay. we see Pugsley and, and um, Wednesday dumping the oil on the carolers. But who, what's the first person we see in the Adams Family movie after that? Thing. Thing. Which, rewatching that recently, oh boy, does the green screen on that not hold up whatsoever. <laughs> it is jarringly apparent every time you can see the cutoff of the hand because it's just a stump too. It's like it's like. It's like an indent impression. Yeah, it's really weird that they did it that way so they can give them a little bit more flexibility. Uh, Because I remember FedEx commercials at the time, too, using Thing in their FedEx commercials because of uh, uh, there's a scene where he gets a job working for Mm – well, he gets a job working for the movie's version of FedEx, but then in in the commercials it's FedEx uh, throwing packages around. But uh, that was done well, but later on it's not done very well. So the commentary with Thing, I was also kind of hoping that it was going to be in sign language – like he would do sign language, but I guess that would be yeah, too much. Yeah, that that is not what's happening. Now, yeah, who is playing thing and it in the commentary? It's not stated who's actually playing them because it's not, of course, the original actors. It's not anyone from the movies. Right. I think this is just Joe Schmo and Joe Schmo. I don't know. Well, I it's think we could find out. In the DVDs. I think we could probably find out online who plays thing and it in the um, Adams in family. The yeah, the, the Adams family DVD commentaries. You know, I'll look into that. Yeah, so uh, if you happen to know, you can leave us a comment below, or we'll uh, we'll talk about it next week. Because was, I was curious about that, because I was like, wait a minute, there were no DVDs, there were no commentaries, there were no DVDs in 1960. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> there weren't even, uh, I mean, very few episodes were ever even released on VHS, so uh, this was something more modern, who played Thing and It in the uh, bonus material. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. Um, so, also, in this episode, even though the title of the episode is, like, My Fair Lady is My Fair Cousinette, 
all of the plays are plagiarized from William Shakespeare in the entirety of this episode. Oh, you know, shocker. I know, I know. It's, it's, Gomez is furiously writing a new play, and it ends up being just a quote from Merchant of Venice. Yeah, but again, going back, I mean, these two episodes that we have been recovering um, definitely influenced the Addams Family movie because uh, the play that uh, Pugsley and, uh, and Wednesday do at their um, elementary school or middle school, mm-hmm. whatever it is, um, is from Shakespeare as well. When they put the um, when they put the fake limbs on themselves that uh, yeah. Fester gives them at the you know in the dressing room, which by the way would where the blood was coming from, even though it's like cartoon violence or whatever, is unbelievable in that stage play. But yeah, they're doing Shakespeare because they're trying to practice Shakespeare earlier in the movie. So yeah, yeah. So. All right. If you like to follow us on Facebook, go to the Dead TV Podcast. You can also find us on uh, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure you leave a rating for us. If you would like to send us an email, you can at thatradiohorror at gmail dot com. And you can find us on our individual Twitters at Christy, S-A-V, and at Elegantly Kinky. And go to RadioHorror.com for all the, other epi- all the other podcasts that I happen to do. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Addams Family. <laughs> Bye, everyone.